I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. Some are famous, some are rich, some are both, and some are neither. But they're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. You'll hear life stories of celebrated TV and film stars, musicians, producers, comedians, composers, and rock stars, to name a few. And that's just the start. We also explore the surprising journeys of entrepreneurs, doctors, business people, athletes, and CEOs you may never have heard of, but we'll be glad you did. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today we are welcoming Greg Garcia to our studio. Greg is so funny that most times when I'm talking to him, I can't stop laughing. His story is one of hilarity and hard work. After briefly working as a radio board op and on-air personality in Maryland, he was given an opportunity to move to Los Angeles. He jumped at that chance and got himself into a beat-up old car and drove across the country. After coming here in the early 90s, with some fits and starts, he found success as a TV writer. Since starting out, his television career has garnered him multiple awards. In 2006, Greg won the Emmy for the pilot of My Name is Earl. Today, he's executive producing and directing the guest book on TBS, as well as, for the first time ever, working on a musical with Jimmy Buffett. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Greg Garcia. Hello. Hi. This is, that was very nice. Uh, hugely successful. Gosh, hugely what a successful. treat to hear that. <laughs> well, wow. I've, had, I've known you, I think, well, at least 20 years, I think I've known it's you. It's been a while, yeah. It's been a long time. Back to the days when we had no wrinkles on our faces. Yeah, I hide mine now. Since I've had a beard, it's funny because some people say, like, yeah, I really like the beard, which basically just meant they didn't like half of my face. <laughs> Because it's just a mask. It's just a hair mask. And then if I cover up my bald head with my baseball hat, really, you're just seeing my eyes. I've just There's narrowed a, it down. to And just, they're in shadow, you so you're really nose. not yeah, seeing any. I know. It's mood lighting for the eyes. So I've, I've figured it out. <laughs> but I've you have a good nose. All right, thank you. you. Know, there's a lot to say about it's working. That. Okay, it's good. Working. Okay, it's strong working. nose and shadowy eyes, <laughs> and I'm working it. And I will tell you that I'm, I'm going to start in the middle and then we'll move mm. backwards because when you go to visit Greg in his offices on the lot at CBS, he has the furniture in his office from one of television. Yeah, from My shows. Name Is Earl. Yeah, so I I loved I, that show. Oh, yeah. thank you yeah. so much. Whatever office I've ever had, I feel most comfortable if I can decorate it so it looks like my parents' basement in the 1970s. <laughs> So I always have wood paneling. I always have dusty old just shag carpet. Shag, shag orange shag carpet. I was going to say orange. orange, the color of orange, orange and brown. Orange shag carpet. Uh-huh. I have some black velvet paintings on the wall. Uh-huh. I have a couch, like you know, one of those couches that's kind of fabric and, yeah. and there's like little a, velourish. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. You hit yeah. it and just a big cloud of dust yeah. comes up. And the, the the furniture was actually from the Jamie Presley, her character on My Name Is Earl, her yeah. trailer. I just took the furniture with me. So yeah. Yeah, I've always felt very comfortable in that space. So, yeah, it's it's always an adventure. People walk in and they're like, whoa. So let's start at the beginning. Sure. Where are you from? I'm from Arlington, Virginia, right outside D.C. My whole family, everybody, 
is from that area. You know, I went to the same high school that my mother went to, and we lived across the street from the uh, Catholic high school that my father went to, and my grandparents lived a block away, and the other set of grandparents, which I thought at the time was just like so, so far away, were about a five-minute drive away. (laughs) Wow. And uncles, you know, everybody right there in Arlington for a long time. Close family? Close family. Everybody was very close. I have one sister. And so it was just the two of us growing up. She's a little bit older than me. You know, we started out in an apartment. I didn't live there very long. And then my parents got their first house. And my father worked for a uh, railroad association where he was kind of in charge of membership and getting people to join the railroad association, which I don't even understand how many railroads I don't even know what that is. That's the first time I've ever heard that. What is a railroad association? I have no idea. You know, (laughs) and then he went on to work for a tool and die association. And the funny thing is... Over the years, people would ask me, like, what did your father do? And I'd say, well, he works for a tool and die association, and he travels a lot internationally. And they're like, what? Well, what is exactly does, does he do? And I'm like, I, I don't And so a lot of people would say to me, oh, your dad worked for the CIA. I mean, <laughs> he has a job that <laughs> well, you don't really know Arlington, what it is. You, you live in Arlington. <laughs> he travels abroad a lot. He works for the CIA. And I said that to my mother once, and she said, the only way he works for the CIA is if he doesn't know it. Like... <laughs> Like if they like put something in his tooth, send him to Japan, knock him out, take it out of his tooth. Like if he's so just funny. like a, a mule, <laughs> which would make total sense because my dad, we love him to death, but his nickname is Gump after Forrest Gump because he's had a series of events where uh, he just does the wrong thing. But so, yeah, so he he did that. And even like early on, he'd drive a cab on the weekends just to make more money. And so I would sometimes go with him into D.C., which was like as like a six, seven year old was like amazing to me because we would just drive around at like five in the morning and just pick up drunks and hookers and what wow. have you you know well let me make it clear the hookers were we were driving them from place to place we weren't just like Picking we weren't just going out early. that was that wasn't son. until i was like 13 that dad and i did that but like i would sit in the front seat and just hear them yammering on and i think it was kind of the first time i actually just like got exposed to like just characters of just like man this is this is exciting. What's going on out in the world? So, was your dad a man of humor like you? He's he's a funny guy. Yeah, he's definitely a funny guy. And I've actually gotten to learn that more over time. I, I don't think when I was little, I was like, oh, he's hysterical or anything like that. Like he's he's always trying to make us laugh. Like I think I'm trying to do with my kids. Um, you know, sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't. But <laughs> humor was it was a lot of humor in my house. But a, a lot of humor between my parents too of just like. You know, nobody was safe. Like, you know, you would make fun of each other, you know, and and, and we still do that. And and my wife's family, it's funny because she was like, my family does not. There's no, there's no yeah. humor over here. Yeah, there's the, we don't pick on each other like that. I don't know how it would, would work out. You have to have thick skin in my family because we just mess with each other, whether it's pranks, whether it's just making fun of people. You know, we do it you know, all the time. And that goes on in your adult life now as a father to your children. You're oh, abs- so Oh, absolutely. Funny. Yeah, we mess, we mess around all the time. We have, we have a good time, and, and I'm trying to continue uh, the pranks with them. Uh, actually, just, just the other day, I was at LAX, and uh, we found a luggage tag on the ground at baggage claim. It was just a luggage tag. And my son was like, what are we going to do with that? And I go, well, we should return it. He goes, you're just going to return the tag? And I go, well, yeah. I mean, it's somebody's tag. It's nice. It's in a leather thing. It's somebody in Richmond, Virginia. They must be on vacation in L.A. And he goes, okay. I go, but here's the thing. Let's put it on a bag and we'll send it to him. And he's like, why are we going to do that? I go, because it's just going to confuse the hell out of him. They're going to get the bag. They're going to go, wait a sec. This is our tag, but it's not our bag. (laughs) 
And I go, here's the other thing we're going to do. Because they're going to go, what, 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 should we open it? There's something in it. I don't know. Well, open it. Well, it's our tag, but it's not our bag. Then they open it. Guess what's going to be in it? We're going to fill it full of marshmallows. <laughs> so two weeks ago, we shipped it. So somebody in Richmond, Virginia got a bag full of marshmallows with their tag on it, and they're trying to figure out what the hell And you will never know their reaction. No. Because <laughs> we didn't put a return label or anything. That's so funny. Now, we did keep a copy of the – we took a picture of the tag, so I do have an email address and a phone number. So we thought that we could, like, in a year, like, just call at, like, midnight and just go, marshmallows. <laughs> you scared the I don't know. know. We won't freak do that. Out. That'll freak them out. Freak. <laughs> we may email them in like a month and just go, <laughs> just hey, say, hey, listen. that was me. Is uh, your love of the seventies <clears throat> kind of a byproduct of the close knit family you had and that time for you? Probably. I mean, yeah. that probably makes a lot of sense. Should I lay down on the couch? I feel like I'm like, <laughs> no, because really my, no, my, no, you know, on that, my brother, like, he'll eat the worst food ever that we grew up with in that time. Yeah. I love the 70s because of that. You know, those were the times where I where, where I discovered, like, uh, Smoking the Bandit movies mm-hmm. and yeah. Burt Reynolds. And, like, the first time I was making any money, I went and bought a, a, a 1977 Trans Am with the eagle on the hood, you know, which I have now. <laughs> I got about eight still miles the to the gallon. It's ridiculous. You still yeah. have it? Oh, that's awesome. I still have it, yeah. It's sitting in the garage. In fact, Burt Reynolds signed it because he did an episode of My Name is Earl, so he signed it. And then also I think I had such a good time in college uh, and it was a small town and I think that's why I'm kind of drawn to small towns and writing things about small towns. So certainly, yeah, like good times in your life, you want to kind of go back and relive them. Your kids must enjoy listening to the stories of that close-knit family, I think, of how you grew up. Sure. It, it, it certainly does. And they see the pranks that now we're pulling in our family and they enjoy it. You know, um, one of my favorite ones that I did to my wife involved our neighbors. They let us know right away that when we moved in that they have a very expensive violin. I don't know why they they told us this, but they told us they have a $750,000 Stradivarius violin. So then about a year later, my wife calls me. I'm working on My Name is Earl. And she's freaking out. And she goes, they just called me and asked me to hold on to their violin because they don't want they, – they're going out of town for a week. And if the temperature changes, if the air conditioning goes down, it could it could affect it. They just wanted to keep it. The she goes, I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out. This thing – I think this thing's worth like $7,000. And I go, no, no, no. Kim, Kim. It's worth $750,000. She goes, I don't know what to do. I go, relax. She goes, I have it in a trunk in the closet with tape and don't go in. And the, the oldest kid is like five years old at this point, four or five. I said, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You, you, you're, you're freaking out over nothing. I hang up the phone. I get a production assistant in my office. I go, go find me the cheapest violin you can find. (laughs) So I go home that night with a $35 violin. My wife is in the shower. I give it to the five-year-old. He comes around the corner playing it like a guitar. (laughs) She screams. He smashes it on the ground and runs out of the room. She's losing her mind. (laughs) Oh, that's and, awful. Uh, and then it's I went awful. in and told her what happened. <laughs> and, she, and then she's like, oh, you, I love you. She goes, that was a good one. That was a good one. She goes, it was a good one. I got to say. I got to say. Has she become a like a student of this this form of art that you practice and have <laughs> carried on? Is, I love practical jokes, and but people don't get me a lot because they fear the retribution. And because like, cause I love them so much that I like to get people back if they get me, and I'll put a lot of time and energy into it. And so I don't get gotten as much as I would actually like. So you lived in this house growing up Lived with in this your house sister. Growing you, up. Are you close now, all four of you? Is your, are your mom and dad alive? Yes, they are. We're Lucky. still all very close. My sister, I'm very close with my sister. She was just she just came out with her kid for a while. They do a lot of traveling out here at this point to come visit us, but we go back at Thanksgiving and then some other times as well, um, but still very close. Talk to my parents usually once a day. 
Yeah, we're all very close. So uh, that's all been great. So when you were in high school, part of who you are is from the family you grew up in with the pranking and all that stuff. But in the comedy writing, did you start to feel that early on that that might be what you yeah, um, wanted def- to do? I mean, being small all my life, I think as soon as I got into kindergarten, I was like, I'm going to make people laugh. Like That was a way to get people to like me and make friends. And I learned that right away. So I was like the talkative kid. I was the kid who wouldn't shut up, was always making jokes within like the first two weeks of kindergarten, first grade and second and third. Within like two weeks, I was put in the back of the room away from everybody else so I wouldn't talk. And then by the time it was fourth, fifth and sixth grade, by the time the first day I got there, word was out. My desk was already back by the water fountain, which people would come and get a drink of water. And I'd like have like 30 seconds to make them laugh, you know, and I'd have like a real quick try to do it. So I was always the class clown, always looking for attention that way. I loved sitcoms. I watched sitcoms constantly. I would get home from school and I would watch TV all afternoon, always sitcoms. Then when it was time to eat dinner, I would take a little cassette recorder and I would record the sitcoms I couldn't watch, just the audio. And then after dinner, I would go downstairs and listen to them. So it was actually training for kind of directing and stuff because you'd have to like place the actors where they were. I'm surprised you didn't because it's also great training to be in front of the camera. Like I'm surprised you didn't choose that path. Yeah, I never really was that drawn to that. I did like a little acting when I was a kid in like children's theater and everything like that. I never really even thought that I was going to work in television, to be honest with you. I was living in Virginia and California seemed like so far away. It seemed like such a pipe dream. And, you know, I I have put myself in some of my shows just to be goofy from time to time. (laughs) But it was writing that I just kind of fell into. So I never really gave that too much thought. Was there a history of that in your family? Anybody else did this? No, nobody was really ever into entertainment. Nobody left Virginia, you know? I mean, so I was I was always digging it. And around high school, I finally had a teacher who, in an English class, said, if you'll shut up the entire class, she was like, I think you're funny, but I have a class to teach. If you'll shut up the entire class, you can always have the last five minutes. You can get up in front of the class for five minutes, and you can do five minutes of just comedy. <laughs> Wow. And I was like, that's uh, that's amazing. I mean, this was the first person that got me to shut up. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there and I'd think about, okay, what am I going to do? How What's my set going to be like? It's probably 10th grade. Yeah. Wow. So like wow. 15, 16 years wow. old. Wow. What an amazing thing that she identified. Oh, that it was great. a way to channel that. Oh, I mean, she we, we both, it was mutually uh, beneficial for both of us. And I would just love it. And I would get up there and I would do a little bit of comedy. And, <laughs> and it was fun. But then I went to this little college in Maryland called Frostburg State University. And it was like everybody's safety school. It was where I, the only place I applied. And I got in and I was like, well, they want me. I want them. Let's not be rude. (laughs) I don't have to take the SATs again. It seems like a match made in heaven. And actually, when I toured the school, there were some guys up in a dorm window and they had a uh, microphone, like a megaphone. And they were going. I was on the tour and they were like, don't let your sons go here. All we do is drugs and drink. But bring your daughters. We'll take care of them. And I just thought. I, I could be in that window. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I can be in that window. That's my line. That's so funny. So I went to college at this school, Frostburg State, and I was working at radio stations all the time. Like I would work at a radio station uh, during the summer in D.C. I had a college radio station. Uh, on air? Yeah, on mm-hmm. air. Uh, the one in D.C., I would the, I would be the promotions guy. So I would drive around in a van. I would give away like Frisbees and stuff at pools in the summer, and I would like call in and do like a quick little like – they gave me this crazy name, Greg the Party Gobot. That was my <laughs> – 
<laughs> Greg, the party. I remember party sitting in the guy's by. office and he goes, you need a radio name. And I go, well, how about just Greg Garcia? It's fine. He goes, no, you need a radio name. He goes, I got it. Greg, the party go bot. And I was like, <laughs> are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I got a lot of shit about that from people. But again, you were like the talent. Yes. That, as that, opposed that, to the right. You know? I know. In that one, yeah. yeah absolutely. So I would like, so I'd be like, I'm show. Greg, the party go bot. I'm down at Dominion Hills pool. Come on down and blah, blah, blah. And so I was working in radio, and I thought I would work in radio because that seemed like a, a more obtainable goal, and I was enjoying it, and there was entertainment involved in it and what have you. But then I was in line for to register for classes my junior year, and I needed another class, and a guy said, oh, I'm going to take this TV writing class. And I was like, what's that? And he goes, it's a sitcom writing class. You write a sitcom. And here's the thing. They're somehow hooked up with Warner Brothers and with a bunch of different universities. They send all the scripts to Warner Brothers, and if they like your script, they fly you to Los Angeles for two weeks, and you hang out on the set of a sitcom. And I'm like, what a great program. You're like 19 years old or something like that. Yeah, I'm like 19 years old. I love sitcoms. (laughs) I need a class. It's a contest. Why not? I'll take it. So I sign up, and we're taking the class, and... And I'm supposed to write a script, but it's due the next day and I haven't even started. And I just took a bunch of caffeine pills and I sat down and I wrote a Cheers script because I liked that show. It was on the air at the time. The next day we read it in class and everybody was laughing and I was like, this is awesome. you know. And the teacher gave me some notes and she she started giving me these notes and I thought, these are wrong. These notes aren't aren't right. you know. I don't think she's ever seen the show. And so I did my own notes based on what people laughed at and what they didn't. I turned it back in, and she gave it back to me, and I got a C minus. And she said, "You didn't, you didn't take any of my notes." And I said, "I know, I know, but I didn't necessarily agree with them." And she goes, "Well, if I'm the executive producer of a TV show and I give you notes, you need to take them, or you're going to be fired." And I said, "I know, but, but you're not the executive producer of a TV show, <laughs> and 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 we're going to send this to." Los Angeles, and I if I send win. your version, I'll never know if I would have been picked. And she says, "Okay, well, you got to see minus." And I said, "Okay." Well, I was one of two people in the country picked. Wow. Um, wow! Myself and a woman from American University, and so then the tides changed. The teacher was like, "I knew it! Oh, you're brilliant!" <laughs> yeah, blah, blah, blah. And she was a very nice woman, and who's no longer with us. And uh, she got a lot of fun out of the fact that uh, it worked out and everything. But I went out to Los Angeles. And at the time I had graduated college, I was working on a radio station with Tony Kornheiser, who's on uh, yeah. ESPN mm-hmm. and, and uh, was a columnist in the, the Washington Post. And he had his first radio show, and I was the board op. So I would be in charge of, like, sound effects and playing commercials and what have you. And he also encouraged me just to talk because uh, one day he asked me a question, and I nodded. And he goes, idiot, you can't nod. It's the radio. <laughs> and he, I turned on the mic, and I said a joke. And then he said, you talk whenever you want. He goes, you're funny. <laughs> So that was great, and I was doing that, but then I got the call that I would go to Los Angeles for a week. I hung out on a show called Room for Two with Linda Lavin and Patricia Heaton. It was a short-lived sitcom, and I sat with the writers for a week, and I started to kind of pitch jokes, and they started to put some of them in. And it was amazing. I couldn't believe like these guys were just sitting around a room. It was just a collection of class clowns. No, no teacher was telling them to shut up (laughs) and they just would sit around all day and come up with stories and make jokes. And I was like, this is 
This is this is amazing. This is what I should be doing. And I actually, uh, after a week, I was supposed to leave, and I said to the executive producer, I said, um, this guy Rick Kellard, who lived in our old neighborhood Mm -hmm. as well, he said, if you want to stick around for a little bit, you know, I don't care. I'm not paying you. You're getting jokes in the script. So I actually stayed until Warner Brothers found out I was still in the motel that they were keeping (laughs) and told me I had to leave. And I went back to D.C. and and I told Tony and everybody at the radio station, I think I'm going to go out there and give this a shot. And they were very supportive. They said, well, just go and when you fail, come on back and you'll have a job here. And I packed up everything I had into a Volkswagen Jetta and uh, I drove across country and I slept on the the couch of a friend who worked at uh, a footlocker at the mall in Huntington Beach. And uh, and I then I was here and I was like, well, what am I going to do? I don't really know anybody. And I did some extra work on the show 90210 mm-hmm. just to make ends meet. I, I graduated. I went to the prom for Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> my friends were like freaking out back home. They, they were looking for my name and the credits. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just walking by in a crowd scene. 92 mm-hmm. is when I moved out. 92, 93 is when I moved out. And I made a list of every sitcom that was on the air. And I found whoever was in charge of hiring, and I sent resumes to every single one, just blind. And I got one interview on a show called Step by Step um, with Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers to be a production assistant. And I got the job. And now I was delivering scripts. I was getting lunch for the writers. I was trying to let them know that I was funny by making little jokes to the writers. And one of them read my script, and I got an agent. Then I got into another writing program, a Warner Brothers program that was a 10-week program. And out of that, I got my first job on a show called On Our Own. So I got very lucky that I was only out here for about a year that I got my first shot. And what were you, 20, 21, something like that? I was 23 years old. Not maybe married. Maybe about to turn 24. Not married. I was dating my wife long distance because we went to college together, but we didn't date in college. <laughs> I made a move on her after college uh, at a drunken <laughs> drunk at a bar uh, on my way to Los Angeles, actually. I pleaded my love to her. And then we Aww. kept in touch long distance. And then I took her to a wedding, my friend's wedding, when I went back east. And uh, yeah, so we were dating long distance at the time, but I'm 24 years old. I have my first writing job. I'm living at the beach. I'm like, this is... This is pretty cool. Yeah, this is good. I'm good. I'm digging this. Yeah, I'm waiting for it to all all fall apart. And then, so yeah, that was just tracking that through real quick to where I got. You know, then I I worked on this show called On Our Own. It got canceled, and then I went and worked on a show called Family Matters with Urkel. I remember that show. um, Uh Which was was a lot of fun. I'm still friends with Urkel That show was on there a long time. Long time. I was there at the tail end. Like, I was there at the point where Urkel would go into a transformation chamber and turn into, like, a cool version of himself (laughs) or Bruce Lee and fight (laughs) People like it was insane, but it was fun to write. I did that for two years, and then I got into the development process. Uh, The guy that was running that show asked me to write a pilot with him, which was very early in my career to write a pilot. But he liked my writing and wanted to do something together. And we wrote this pilot called The Baker Boys, which there used to be these DJs in in Los Angeles called The Baker Boys. And somebody at ABC decided we want to do a TV show with them about them on the radio. So we wrote it. We actually shot it. It was. Awful. Just awful. (laughs) Didn't get on. Learned a lot of stuff from that. And then after that, I created another show 
that was ironically named Built to Last that lasted three episodes on NBC. <laughs> we shot seven. Three of them aired. We went up against Dharma and Greg. We both premiered at the same time. They did much better than we did. But again, learned a lot of stuff. Those were all Warner Brothers shows. And from there, I, I went over to 20th Century Fox where I worked on a show called Getting Personal with John Cryer and Vivica Fox. I can't and, believe uh, that you remember all of this in order. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I enjoyed that's, all of it. That's very cool. And so then, yeah, so then I went to um, – <laughs> I worked on the show Family Guy, the animated show, and then I finally created Seth? my first show, uh, Yes, Dear. You pleaded with your, your now wife. Yeah. She came out here at some point. She came out here once she saw things were going to be okay. No, actually, she, I think she came out when I was still a PA. But uh, yeah, I got she, she moved out, and we, uh, we had this big plan where she was going to get an apartment, and I'd have an apartment, and then within like a month of like looking, we're like, well, what are we doing that for? So right. <laughs> we just we moved in together, and then it wasn't uh, probably about a year and a half later that we were married. Oh, yeah. that's very romantic. Yeah. What struggles were going on? Like, what do you remember back then? Because it's not easy to get into. <laughs> like, is there they, any? Or you just kind of naively all, like, whatever. They must all work. be still to come, <laughs> oh, which yeah. I fear. To, uh. I fear that because I know, I mean, it was, really was just, I, I hate to say it, and it, 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 I'm sure it angers people. It was, But I, I, I have to admit, it was, it was easy, you know? I mean, look, you work hard. I never stopped trying but struggles i can't say there's struggles but there were definitely times where i thought it wasn't going to work it wasn't like struggles i mean i had moments like uh i was driving across country and i'd given my script i'd written a seinfeld script and tony kornheiser knew a guy that worked for seinfeld and he sent the script to him and another guy at the radio station knew somebody that worked on a show called Dinosaurs. If you remember that sitcom where people actually dressed up as dinosaurs <laughs> and there was a family. It was kind of crazy. And he was a lower level writer on this show, Dinosaurs. Both of these Hollywood writers were going to read my script and I was excited about it. Well, the guy that worked on Dinosaurs told me to call him on a certain date. And I just happened to be halfway across the country in um, Shamrock, Texas at a motel. And I'm with my friend Tony who's driving across country with me. And I call him. And he goes, oh, yeah, 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 let me get your script. And he comes back and he, he says, yeah, I read it. I don't think you should come out here. <laughs> and I said, and you're in Shamrock. I said, I'm halfway. I'm in Texas. He goes, oh, well, I don't know, man. I don't think you have what it takes. And that was it. That was, that was the extent of the notes on my script. And I hung up and Tony said, what, what happened? I go, what did he say? I go, he, he said to turn around. <laughs> he says, well, I want to see the Grand Canyon. I said, yeah, me too. I said, we're not turning around. And then I got out to L.A. Now, the guy that actually was a co-executive producer of Seinfeld, friend of Tony Kornheiser's, he goes out to lunch with me and he gives me the greatest notes of all time. He goes, this is what's great about it. This is what you need to fix. But I think this is good and pumped me right back up. But it certainly took the wind out of my sails for a moment, you know. And then when I did the 10-week writer's program at Warner Brothers, they told me I wasn't going to get a job. They said they're not even going to send me out for interviews. And I thought – even well, though they used some of your jokes in the... No, because that was the first program I went in. But the oh, second program okay. I went in, it's like they pick 30 people out of like 800. You do a 10-week program. This is I'd moved out here and I would just... I'd been a PA for a year and then I got into this other Warner Brothers program. So they pick 30 people out of 800 and they tell you the first day not everybody's guaranteed to get a job. But you're sitting there thinking, I just beat the odds from 800 to 30. Surely right. I'm going to beat the odds and get the job as well. Everybody is thinking that. And so after the program, they told – I had an agent at the time. I was lucky that I got to sign an, an agent to sign me. And they told them, we're not sending Greg out 
to any interviews because that was the next step is you go out for interviews. And they said, why? Oh, we just we just we're not going to do it. Now, later, I find out there's some guy that didn't like me there and I still don't know why. But I went back to work as a PA and I had left getting into this program and everybody thought, oh, well, that means you're going to get a job. And so the first day I have to let people into the parking garage because they don't have their passes yet. So everybody would drive up and go, hey, what happened? I thought you were going to be a writer. You got the program. And I'm like, no, nah, you know, it didn't work out. I didn't get any interviews and whatever. And then I had to do that every single time. So by, by the 10th time, I'm like, no, I didn't get it right. <laughs> and so I went back to being a PA and I thought, okay, well, it's not going to happen in one year. That would have been quick anyway and, and what have you. I'm just going to keep doing the job that I have. Lots and, of resilience. Yeah, you know, like, you just, I'm like, you know. As your nature. Well, it's funny because one time the woman that was uh, my boss was telling me to scrub out the bottom of trash cans. And I'm like, I don't think that's my job. And she ended up throwing the trash cans at me. And I ended up calling my mother and I said, I don't know what to do. And she goes, scrub the trash cans. She yeah. scrubbed the trash cans. Yeah. It, yeah. She goes, and then you're going to be writing in six years and that woman's still going to be yelling at people to scrub trash cans. Go scrub the trash cans. Yeah. The thing yeah. that comes through to me and just hearing you talk is, you know, like with the teacher that said, here are your notes, you should do these notes. And you're like, no, actually, there's like this trust that you have in, in your path or your vision or what you're going to do. I think I just want to sink or swim like yeah. on like, cause I, I don't want to have regrets, you. you know? Yeah. And so I was a PA and I didn't know what to do and I thought I'll just keep working at this. But one day I saw some people from the workshop that I was in go into a, an office across the street. So I waited for them and they came out and I said, what were you doing in there? And they said, oh, we had a uh, we had an interview with this guy, Dave Duclan, who's got this new sitcom. And they said, how many interviews have you had? And I said, none. And they go, well, your script was good. And I go, yeah, I don't know what happened. Some guy didn't like me over there. They said, all right, well, good luck. And they walked away. Well, I went and grabbed my script. <laughs> And I Went knocked on that guy's yeah. office door and I said, hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm from the workshop. And he goes, did did we have a meeting? I go, no, <laughs> no. Uh, I work across the way at uh, Step by Step. And it was all kind of the same executive producers. So he goes, yeah, I've seen you around. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a PA on Step by Step. And I went through the workshop and I just wanted to drop off my script. I go, they're not sending me out for any meetings. I don't know why. He goes, why do you think that is? I, go, I, I said, I don't know. Maybe my script stinks, but I don't think it does. Uh, I think it's good. So I thought I would drop it off if you get a chance to read it. He goes, absolutely. I'll read it tonight. He called me the next morning. He goes, I love it. Come over here for an interview. So I went over there. I had the wow. interview. Some of the writers on Family Matters that knew this guy, I was around them as a PA and they saw that I was just a happy, jovial guy who was doing this crappy job but with a smile on my face and making jokes and they put a word in for me. And he called the workshop and said, I'm going to hire somebody from the workshop. And they always get excited when you hire someone for the workshop because it's a feather in their cap. And they said, oh, good, good, good. Who? who? says, Greg Garcia. They said, we didn't send him over there. He says, no, he just came over. And they said, no, well, we, we have better people. And wow. he said, well, I've met other people and I don't think you do. I'm going to hire them. And so that was that. Yeah. So that's how I got my first job. So I wouldn't call it a struggle, but certainly I had to learn how to that was Well, you're not letting no anyone an else tell you that you can't go after what you want. And then you've had that reinforced by people saying, I think it is really good. Yeah. You know, and it's, not from the authorities or whoever is sort of in charge saying, we don't think you're good enough. It's, yeah. so, it's so inspirational yeah. Yeah. for people younger people who will listen to this because there just aren't that many examples of just going there's a different way there's always a path forward yeah. and just knowing that just having somebody a young person hear this sure. who might have taken some rejection is just so cool well what's funny is you know and how i relate it to my own kids and stuff you know i've often said and i explained this to my son once he was trying out for the hockey team 
and he was like nine or ten years old. And there was an A team and a B team. And all weekend long, there's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday tryouts. And then they slowly during the weekend, they'll tell you what team you're on. And so the first night happened, and half of his friends got put on the A team. And then he was part of the people that said, we haven't decided yet. All right? And he was very distraught. And I said, hey, man, you go back tomorrow, and you play hard, and you see what happens. You know. So Saturday he went, and at the end of the Saturday tryouts, he got put on the B team. And so Saturday night, he was still very distraught and bummed out. That, you know, he thinks he's going to play in the NHL when he's 10 right. years old. You know, And now he's, he's on, he can't even make the A team, and he's bummed out about that. So Sunday morning, we're driving because they have, they have the ice time. They have them skate around on Sunday anyway. And we're driving, and I go, today, uh, today you got to get out there. I said, today, uh, you know, you got to go out there and skate hard. And he said, he said, why? I said, listen, I said, everything I've ever done in my career, there was some anger behind it. Somebody told me no, and I wanted to prove them wrong, okay? So, you know, even My Name is Earl, it was a thing that I wrote that they told me that it wasn't a TV show. And it sat on a shelf for a year and a half, and I just kept trying and trying until it got on. They canceled My Name is Earl. And I was so angry that they canceled My Name is Earl, I wanted to do a new show right away and prove them, you know, that they should have canceled it. And I did the show Raising Hope. Everything that, you know, it's, it's anger with a smile on my face, but it comes from anger. I said, so today is the most important day of the whole weekend because today is the day that you show them they were wrong. And he kind of got a smile on his face and he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he went out there and he skated hard. And just to take, you know, you can do one of two things with a no. You can just let it discourage you and crawl away and do something else. Or you can be like, oh, yeah, really? Now, at the same time, if everyone tells you no for a long time, maybe find something else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and be good at that. Yeah. But it certainly has been a driving force for me. And I don't know what... It is about me or what have you that I really do get a fire in my belly like, oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Really? It's not going to work, huh? Okay. We'll yeah. see about that. Sort of underestimate at your own risk. Yeah. 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 Another thing I tell my kids, which is something I've done forever, and I don't even know where I got this, but I always and – I, and I tell this to a lot of people when they when – they, you know, I, I meet with a lot of people's kids come out to L.A. and they don't really know what they want to do and, and the, where do you start and what have you. And I, I tell this to my kids as well and I'm encouraging them to start doing this now. And I did it when I first moved out here is I always keep three lists and I have one list that's just long-term goals. And it's just anything you want to put on it. Written cr- down? Written down. Craziest things you want to put. When I first moved out here, it was – you know, I want to run my own television show. I want to have my own talk show. I want to make this much money. I want to buy a house. I want to do this. You know, everything I want in my life, just put it all mm-hmm. down on one. And I don't let anything stop me to put stuff down. You know, if I encourage my son to do it when he's 10 years old, I say put NHL hockey player. You know, whatever. All the things you want, you put them on that list. All right. Now, that list is going to just stay there up on the wall. Now, you make a next list of what are the things you need to do to get to each of those things. So let's break it down. If you want your own show, well, you're going to have to get a you're going to have to write a spec script. You know, let's take it all the way back. You're going to have to write a spec script and show people you can write. Then you're going to need to get a job as a PA. Then you're going to need to get a job as a writer. And then you're going to need to get a story editor, executive, you know, whatever. Then you got to get to your own show and you have all the list of things to get to each one of those things. And I did the same thing for if I want to buy a house. Well, I need to save this much money. I need to do this. I have a second list that breaks down the big pie in the sky list. And then I make a third list that's just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I look at the middle list and I go, okay, what can I get done on Monday that will get me closer to crossing off one of these things on the middle list? And I write it down and I get it done. 
and Tuesday and Wednesday and whatever. And what I noticed was now the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday list, I change all the time and what have you. But slowly I'm starting to cross off things on the middle list with the short-term goals. And then all of a sudden, boom, I got to cross something up on the big big list, list, you know? So it's having clarity around your intentions and then what you need to do. And being also able to change. You can change that all the time. There's things on the big list that I was like, I keep them on there for the heck of it, but I'm like, all right, that's not going to happen. Or I add something new to it or whatever. But just to always have that focus of like, this is where I want to go. These are the things I need to do to get there. And they're only going to happen if you chip away at them time after time. I know for me, when I put an intention out, for some reason, different things just start to pop into my sphere of you know consciousness where I go, oh, isn't that interesting? I was just thinking I wanted to do that. And, oh, I just met this person that I just had that conversation with. You know, so yeah, it's, it's on your mind. So that, you're way yes, more aware of yeah. it. So the opportunities that are out there aren't just flying past you. Mm. There's luck all over the place in the world. You just have to grab it and, and hold on to it. It's very disciplined, though. A lot of people couldn't or wouldn't even be aware necessarily of being that. Um, it is. I would it's say dis- pragmatic, but of course it is. It's kind of anal. Very I'm a, aware. I'm a control freak and I'm mm. anal with that stuff. I love lists. I will make a list of things. Things I've already done in the morning, so I can cross them off. <laughs> like that's how crazy. It's very satisfying yeah. for love, you. Yeah, I love lists, and at the same time, like there's stuff on the long term goal, like learn how to play the guitar. That's been on there for 25 years. I can't play the guitar. The story you told was amazing about like having this desire and bit by bit, piece by piece, by seeing opportunities and seizing them, and writing constantly, and having a natural knack for humor. You got into a position of working on some amazing shows. And then more recently, you got involved with Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. And tell which us is about, just a weird thing. So I get a call one day, probably about four or five years ago from my friend Mike O'Malley, who's an, uh, who's an actor slash writer, very good at both. I or know, mediocre Mike. at both, depending know, on what a fan you are. Of Mike Michael also Malley. comes from a really tight knit family. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Oh, he's got a great family, great family fantastic yeah. family. And of course, we knew each other. We worked for each other for six years on the show. Yes, dear. And he called me one day and he goes, "Hey, you want to write a Broadway musical?" And I said, "Have you lost your mind? <laughs> what do you? What could you possibly be talking about?" He says, "Listen, the producers are there. The money's there. The music's there. It's all of Jimmy Buffett's music." We're going to use Jimmy Buffett's catalog, and we're going to come up with an original story that uses his music. Were you a fan of his already? I was a big fan of Jimmy Buffett. I'm even more of a fan now that I've gotten to meet him and hang out with him and stuff because he's exactly who you would want him to be. Uh, my wife is a giant Jimmy Buffett fan. He's a brilliant businessman. Oh, oh a yeah. brilliant businessman. We told him one time, we said, all your songs are about drinking on a beach, and you're one of the shrewdest businessmen we know. And he goes, hey, man, that's my dirty little secret. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've got a Broadway play going. Yep. You've got another show on the air, the show that you're working on now. So now I'm doing a show called The Guest Book. Do you mind so, yeah. talking about it? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's on Thursday <laughs> nights on TBS at 1030. I think they're going to do a season two, so I'm excited about that. And this story, actually, this show came from one of the weird things I do, actually, because I used to go to, like, Big Bear and different places to just go write. I'd rent a house, get out of my loud, crazy house, and just go there so it would be quiet. I feel like now I've spent money. I've driven in my car. I have to get something done. I can't procrastinate. I force myself to write. So the first time I did it, I was having trouble coming up with stories for this show, Raising Hope. And I look over, and there's a guest book. You know, and I start to read it, and it says, oh, we came here with our, you know, with my mother. We had a great time. The kids were sledding, blah, 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 blah. The dishwasher's not working, whatever. 
And I thought, hmm, all right, what could have happened in this house? I'm going to write a story in this thing. And I started walking around. And I ended up writing a 40-page story in the guest book of something just like dark and demented and comedic. In their, you wrote it in their guest in book. In the guest book. Just to freak out the next people. And the owners when they finally show up, right? And I had fun with it you because because I was working on network shows where I can't curse, I can't do crazy things. and But in this guest book, I do whatever I want. So I, I read it afterwards and it cracked me up. So I typed it into my computer and I took it back with me and I was reading it to people and everybody was laughing at the fact that I left this in the guest book. Well, then I went to write again and there was a guest book. So I started walking around and I wrote another story. <laughs> and then over the course of like four years, I did this like 15 times at different places. Even my wife would like rent a house at the beach in North Carolina with her family and she would be there and I'd be working at home and she'd say, there's a guest book. And I'd say, take pictures of the house and send them to me. And then I would write a crazy story and she would write it into their guest book. Is it what you imagine has happened? Yes. Like there was one time I rented a place in Pine Mountain where we ended up shooting the show, which is up the five freeway. And I got there on a Tuesday and the old couple that you get the keys from, they were closed on Tuesday. Nobody told me that. So they didn't leave a key for me. So I knew the address and I knew I'd pay for the place. So I had to break in. I had to turn on the stuff. I had to figure out all the stuff. And I thought, okay, this story in their guest book is going to be about a couple meth heads who <laughs> broke into the house, had such a great time that they had to write in the guest book about it. And we did that episode. It actually just aired. So here I am. I got 15 stories in books littered all over the place in people's guest books. And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book. But then I was like, nah, I don't like uh, – I like to film things. And I even started to write them, I think, more visually in my mind, like maybe I'd film them one day. So my pitch to the networks was I want to do a show about a cabin in the woods, read these stories I've written, and I want these stories to come to life every week. A different set of people rent the cabin every week. It's a different cast every week. It's an anthology show. Mm -hmm. And these stories actually will happen. And TBS was all over it. They decided they wanted to do it. They said, let's do 10 episodes. And so the way I did it was I created some people that live in the town. There's a guy that lives next door. There's a couple that gives the keys. There's a food delivery guy. There's a cop. They're in every episode as well, but only like 10% of each episode. And then 90% is a different cast and one of these crazy stories. Stocker Channing was in one where she played a very religious woman. Uh, her and her husband were very religious, and their son brought – on their vacation to the mountains, brought his fiance, who's an atheist. Well, they're not going to have an atheist entering their family, so they drug her in the middle of the night and they baptize her in the hot tub. <laughs> but she gets an MRSA staph infection from the puncture wound, and and then there's problems. So so that's ninety percent of each episode, and then at the end of the run, ten to twenty percent each week is about these town people, and I'm slowly telling a story about them, and then the tenth episode is just the culmination of their story. I love your energy. I, I'm, as you know, extremely fond of you. You know, right. for anyone listening, yeah. it's great to hear that story that you figured out how to align yourself. A lot of people do things for money and have careers and things that they actually don't enjoy and are probably not best suited for them. So it's a pleasure to hear oh, how you yeah, like, got lucky you've with that. made well, thank your you. path that way. Thank you. So, this was a lot of fun. Thank Thanks. you so thank much. You. Really, it's been great. Next on Say It Forward, you get to up your game with Dr. Michael Gervais. He's the go-to high-performance psychologist for elite professionals, athletes, and executives. Using his mindset skills and practices that create maximum performance, he's trained Olympic gold medalists, world record setters, 
and the champion Seattle Seahawks. Michael is a peer-reviewed author and has been featured by many media outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, ABC, NBC, ESPN, Men's Health, and The New York Times. He's the founder of Compete to Create, a digital community for executives dedicated to bringing out high-performance potential through mindfulness practices. And he's the host of his own podcast called Finding Mastery. So join us for a very revealing mindset experience as we rewind to the beginning with Dr. Michael Gervais on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.